Welcome to the Procurement Show. Hello and welcome to the Procurement Show, the show that tackles the topics we all need to think about and sets out to explore the more interesting bits of procurement. I'm Jonathan O'Brien. And I'm Paul Philpot. My job here is to remind you once again to subscribe and like. This week, we're looking at how we power procurement for the future, specifically what we need to know about energy and the future of how industry and transport will be powered and what we here in procurement need to be planning for. The Procurement Show is brought to you by Positive Purchasing. Enabling the future of procurement in organisations around the globe. To help us here, we have a very special guest who has 34 years experience in electricity distribution and utilities, including 11 years in an environmental role. He claims his career has taken him from craftsman to project management and now works here in the UK with National Grid's electricity distribution business, helping the sector embrace what needs to be done in the energy transition to help to realize net zero and what needs to be done in terms of the environment and also to improve sustainability. Please welcome to the procurement show Andy Martyr Ike. Welcome Andy, it's great that you could join us. Well, it's great to be here, Jonathan and Paul, and thanks for having me. And actually, Jonathan, just last month it ticked over to 35 years in the industry. Wow. So, um, Congratulations. Does that mean you get a gold pen? No, you've got to wait for 40 for that. Oh, are you I close? I don't, only 40, I, I don't think it's a pen anymore, it's a certificate. <laughs> we thought it would be great to get you on the show because you know a lot about both electricity distribution and sustainability and in procurement teams all over the world are struggling with what its role is in terms of buying energy or what it needs to think about basically people just don't know Mm. and i guess the first question just to get us going here is do you think we're ready for the future energy needs of industry and the answer is a short one no. Oh, well, thank <laughs> you not. for listening to the Procurement Show. It's been... <laughs> but that makes the assumption that the energy needs and the energy infrastructure to support the future will stay the same as they are now. Mm. And just as the needs are not realised yet, neither is the development of the infrastructure. The challenge really in our industry is to invest ahead of need. And whether it's with, to use as an example, electric vehicle car chargers, you need to build it so they will come, right? Mm -hmm. You need to have it in place ready for when people start to make the transition and the adoption. And of course, for charge point operators, CPOs as they're known, that can be a challenge because you need to put the infrastructure in place before people are willing or ready to use it or for you to be able to make a profit and recover your costs. And I guess there's a leap of faith here as well because you've got no idea what the rate or level of adoption will be. Yeah, well, this is why governmental targets and regulation is such a help in this. In the UK, for example, we've got a 2030 deadline for the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles. And so that gives a massive lead to people in that sector to put charges in place because they know how many vehicles are sold every year and they know where we will be by 2030. To continue on that point as an example, nobody foresaw the current uptake in electric vehicles. The charge point operators didn't. The impact of lockdown, the impact on electric vehicle or legacy vehicle manufacturers putting a lot of their resources into electric vehicles. And the sudden spike we've seen has meant that during this summer holidays that we're in now, there's going to be a lot of people going on holiday for the first time using electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And a lot of those charges are going to be really, really busy. 
And it takes about six to nine months to negotiate and implement and put in place an electric vehicle charge point. Wow. So the charge point operators would have seen these spike in vehicles five or six months ago, but the charges aren't in yet. So there's that lag. And I guess this leads into, Jonathan, procurement, right? Sure. Because you're dealing with supply chains and we're seeing a lot of bottlenecks in supply chains at the moment. So we need to make sure that we are considering far into the future so as we can provide the services that we need ahead of need. You mentioned about goals in terms of goals that have been placed on you from government initiatives, but that sort of thing's happening within companies and organisations as well. And you know, all sorts of goals, especially switch to renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Buyers are being asked to get on and source it as though it's a very simple question. Is it just about buying things differently, do you think, or is there more to this? What should the procurers be thinking? Well, it's a massive issue, actually, Paul. I mean, if you look at specifically energy We need massive reform of energy markets, specifically the wholesale markets. People will understandably wonder why at the moment, if they're on a renewable energy tariff and the current spike in energy prices is being led as it is by the cost of gas, well, shouldn't my renewable energy be cheaper then? And the reason for that is complex, but essentially it's that the largest generation source, the largest energy source on the wholesale market drives the price. So when gas goes up, because most of our energy comes from gas, the price of energy goes up. And for you as a customer having renewable energy, that doesn't affect the price of your energy. The wholesale price goes up, so you end up paying more too. And to make that fairer and more reflective of a smart energy future, we really need large wholesale reform of how those markets work, because that's the only way that customers will see the benefit. And that really feeds through into everything else. And just to bring it back to the very beginning of this and why I'm so pleased to be involved, even though procurement isn't my area of expertise, I know enough about sustainability, about energy. I've got a long enough career to understand, especially at the moment, just how essential it is to engage procurement in this. Because with the best targets, the best policies, the best will in the world, procurement is almost like, you know, that famous quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm -hmm. You can have the best strategy in the world, but if the culture that you're putting it into isn't fit and isn't welcoming and you're trying to do things to people, it will just die a death. And I think procurement and the supply chain is similar to that. I can have the most ambitious target in the world. But if I don't engage with my supply chain to provide me the kit that I need to deliver it, Mm. then it's just a waste of time. And that's why procurement is so important and why it's so encouraging to be able to speak to people that are experts in that area and understand just how an important role they're going to have over the next few years in driving and facilitating and acting as facilitators, not barriers, that clean, net zero, renewable transition. And I think some of the innovation here is innovation that will come from the supply base. So if you're just setting out to buy stuff because you've got a capital project that you need to deliver, then you're going to get stuff. But if you set out to say, how can we find the most innovative solution we can in terms of sourcing, distributing renewable energy, that changes the game a bit. So procurement, I think, has a real role at the table to think about how can it help the organization source its energy Mm. in a much better way. And it's interesting what you're saying about renewables, because I hadn't quite appreciated that. So we're clearly in a period where the market for renewables isn't really a market for renewables. It's just a big market with electricity that happens to have some renewables in it. And until we sort out how that market works, you can't have a situation where you can buy renewable energy. 
Exactly. And there are people that speak much more eloquently and much more knowledgeably on this than me. The chief exec at Octopus Energy, for example, is really pushing for wholesale market reform so as he can deliver fairer prices to his customers and really prioritize renewable energy. And it's worth, if you're out there and you're looking to buy renewable energy from a supplier, it is worth looking at the small print and finding out where that's coming from. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, some suppliers will buy buy that renewable energy on the wholesale market. Mm. Others will invest or own the renewable energy portfolio themselves. So some suppliers will actually go out there and build the wind turbine yeah. if needed for the energy that you are going to use. Others will just purchase it on the open market, which of course can affect prices and all sorts. So there are different flavors of renewable energy and it's worth checking the small print to see exactly what you're getting. And then there are things, of course, like Ripple Energy, who are right out on the other end, where Ripple Energy, you actually do buy a share in a wind turbine. Oh, wow. And you as a customer, as a business, or even as a private individual, you can buy a share in that wind turbine and get a direct share of the electricity from it. So your bills will be reduced in exactly the same way as having a wind turbine in your back garden. I like the idea of that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's ideal for people that live in a house that can't have solar panels on, for example. You want to be able to, for your own ethical desires, get renewable energy that you know you own. You can't have wind turbines on your house because you live in a block of flats or you live in a listed building. You can go out to Ripple and I am in no way paid or influenced by them. It's just they're the only people out there doing it at the moment. And you can go out and you can buy a share of a wind turbine and you get your share of that energy. I like that. Yeah, it's kind of the modern equivalent Mm. of buying a plot on the moon, isn't it? This is the sustainability. You can buy a share in a wind turbine. that yes because i don't own one i want to talk about net zero because Mm. everywhere i look you're seeing companies rebranding saying things like we're committed to achieving net zero by Mm. 2030 and if i had a pound for every big brand that's leading on that i think i'd be very rich again this seems much more than just changing how we're buying in terms of our suppliers saying this so what exactly do we mean by net zero Is it the same as reducing carbon in the supply chain or is it a fudge? And if it is, how achievable is it? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the first part of that I'll unpick, Jonathan, is a really good point, which is what is net zero? What do we mean when we talk about net zero? Because anybody listening to this that doesn't understand the term it is completely understandable. You are doing nothing wrong. Mm. You are right, Jonathan. It's a phrase that's thrown about all the time and people don't fully understand it. So when we talk about net zero, we're talking about Net zero, usually of carbon emissions, of course. And we're talking about getting your business, your portfolio, your emissions down to as close to actual zero as you can. And then if you can't get to true zero, finding a way, a really good and robust way to remove the equivalent amount of carbon out of the atmosphere so you come down to zero. Carbon neutrality or zero emissions would be to operate a business that is completely carbon neutral, that you have zero impact. There are organizations that claim to do that. I mean, really, you need to be living in a cave, making your clothes out of grass and eating berries that have fallen off trees to really be able to do it. So life at the moment is associated with emissions. We're not there yet. We have built a fantastic 
a very modern world where it's benefited humanity as a whole massively, but we've done it on a carbon overdraft, really. Mm-hmm. We've put a lot of carbon emissions out there. We need to reduce that to zero and start pulling back what we've put out. So net zero is the net total emissions versus recovery meets zero. So you could be a business that still has quite a lot of emissions, but you are really strongly going out there to pull carbon out of the atmosphere so as your thousand tons equal a thousand tons pulled back and you reach net zero and it's not just Uh, about planting trees though is it because a tree doesn't absorb carbon on all its life you know when it's Mm. very small it emits carbon and when it's decaying and old it emits carbon so it isn't as straightforward as that is it well actually it's a good point because you've just actually jonathan done a better job of what i did of describing net zero because a tree is truly net zero Mm. right you plant a tree it grows it absorbs carbon but if you stuck it in a fire at the end of its life all the carbon it absorbed gets thrown back out what's been sucked up will be the same as what's thrown out and Mm. you'll end up at zero and trees trees don't emit carbon early in their life they have a carbon footprint because when we plant them we usually use tractors and diggers and Mm -hmm. vehicles to move them around so there is carbon emissions associated with tree planting and that's usually the mechanization of it not actually the tree Mm -hmm. itself but then once it grows you know you get the best benefit in the first 20 odd years and depends what species of tree you're planting there's a lot of variables in this but tree planting is a very good way of sequestering carbon actually one of the best ways is to encourage peat bogs they are one of the most rich sources of carbon sequestration and so is things like sea kelp so there are many different ways at the moment natural forms of sequestration of carbon are the best there are plants and technologies in the early stages of development to capture and store carbon but none of those even the most successful ones i believe there's were some in scandinavia and one in iceland but they're capturing thousands of tons of carbon a year, which sounds impressive, but actually it's utterly minuscule Mm -hmm. in comparison to the tens of gigatons that we're releasing globally. So it's a complex topic. The Procurement Show, exploring the more interesting bits about procurement. And now, the Procurement Fun Fact. This edition's exciting tale of preposterous procurement, bizarre buying, or simply saucy sourcing. Our procurement fun fact this week is a story of digital data procurement that happens to us all every day without us even knowing. Ever wondered how, when you visit a website, right there is the advert for the very thing you are interested in at that very moment or maybe even just talked about earlier that day? This is because of a thing called programmatic advertising, and it is one of the most modern yet secret forms of procurement that is big business for the companies that we buy from. When you visit a website that uses programmatic advertising, we set up a chain reaction. As our page loads up, the website asks our computer to provide details of our IP address, the browser we're using, and our rough location. If we've allowed cookies to be stored, it goes and gets information from these cookies, including, in some cases, our browsing history, if we've allowed that, and anything else that we have permitted to be tracked or captured in our cookie settings. The website we're visiting then offers up for sale the fact that we are visiting a website together with as much of a profile of us as we have allowed. Our profile then gets sent out to sometimes thousands of companies around the world who will decide if they're interested interested in who we are and what we are interested in and if this is the case they may decide to then make a bid to serve an advert to us 
the highest bidder then gets the contract and serves an ad which then gets sent and appears on the website even before the page is loaded up and that ad is tailored just for us and all of this happens within a fraction of a second and you wouldn't even know about it and all that data that's gone out to thousands of bidders around the world well they get to keep that and when we finish viewing the website the provider gets even more information from us all from those little cookies on our machine and this is a form of procurement that is so fully automated happening in real time in a fraction of a second every time we visit a website. So the moral here is if you don't want your data out there, lock down those cookies and reject them when you can. The procurement fun fact. Contact us by email. Hello at the procurementshow.com. Send us a tweet at procurement show or connect with us on LinkedIn. Search for the procurement show. The other thing I was going to say around net zero is when you see one of those organizations you mentioned, Jonathan, talk about net zero and a net zero target, you have to ask net zero of what? What is within the scope of your target? Mm. For example, some of your listeners may have gone to airports that are proudly saying that they've got net zero Mm. targets. Great, but it's just not the planes that are included. Mm, yeah. You know, it's yeah. the actual facility itself. And for an airport, actually, you've got a lot of space, a lot of solar panels you can pop in, and not a massive amount of energy use other than lighting and heating. So for an airport, if you're going to not include the air traffic yes, and the planes, fine, yeah. if you're just looking at a large building with a lot of space to put solar panels on the roof, net zero is quite achievable. You want to bring the planes into the scope, and it becomes a lot trickier. So you'll see people, whoever it is, Ask what their net zero target relates to, which Mm. bit of their business. Very good tip. And I think that's also something we need to ask ourselves, not just as businesses, but also as consumers. I mean, earlier on, you mentioned about emissions. I think as consumers, we often think that the way we output towards emissions are the cars we drive, basically. We'd all love to have electric vehicles. No doubt there are quite a few organisations that listen to the procurement show who own huge fleets of vehicles. Or are thinking about changing. Thinking about it. But there's something, and I've spoken to you about this offline before that concept of range anxiety what's that basically you're keeping your eyes open for all the opportunities to recharge your vehicle whether you need it or not i so think that's, that's a bit a like definition. phone anxiety yes when you run out of charge on your phone yes. but it's in your car well it's the fear of running out of phone charge you know you put it on charge every moment you want to just interesting to know what you think about the cultural adoption of electric vehicles range anxiety those kind of things i saw a survey just yesterday actually it was on linkedin where Mm -hmm. another energy company were asking users to rate what the barrier was to adoption of an electric vehicle and i think the three choices were range anxiety as you just described it so well the cost of the vehicles or charging infrastructure yes and it was 40 30 30 40 was the cost and 30 percent each on the charging infrastructure and range anxiety now i can completely appreciate the cost issue i'm fortunate enough to drive a company car and because that company car is electric actually i save money because there are tax Mm -hmm. benefits on company cars that are electric so all i see as a company car driver is the massive cost of ownership or cost of driving or cost of fuel savings for example I do quite a lot of miles. I've done 20,000 miles in eight months in my car, and I am averaging at the moment around 1.9 pence per mile, which compared to the cost for most 
petrol and diesel drivers at the moment yes. is a massive saving. Mm-hmm. Those kind of savings are also available to fleets. And so what I would say to anybody out there considering transitioning their fleet to electric vehicles is that while the upfront cost might be massive, the cost of ownership is massively reduced. And of course, the maintenance costs are 19,000 miles. I took my car in to the dealer for a service and I kind of said, what exactly is it that you're going to do to maintain this electric vehicle? And he said, well, you know, we'll check your tires, we'll check your brakes and we'll shine a torch around the bottom. And that's, that's, uh, it. that's about it. <laughs> yes. And that's yeah. what they did. And of course, they cleaned it, yeah. which was nice. Yeah. So the maintenance costs are massive. And that's without even considering what the future of fleet ownership looks like. Mm-hmm. So everybody might have to just kind of open their mind quite wide now. But there's a technology that is in its early stages at the moment, which will be accelerated in the future called B2G, which is a vehicle to grid, or V2L, vehicle to load, or V2X, which is just exporting vehicle batteries, energy somewhere else. So imagine there's somebody listening to this podcast. I'm sure there is. They've got a business with a fleet of vehicles, 50, 60, 70 vehicles, and every night they come back to the depot and they sit there. Those vehicles will probably charge, even on a slow charge, seven or eight hours, they'll have recharged. In those five or six hours after that, maybe three or four hours in the morning before they start to get utilized again, when everybody is at home putting on their kettle and making their breakfast, there is a capacity in the future to take that energy from the vehicle and put it back onto the grid to boil everybody's kettles and to cook everybody's breakfast. My head's just going... And the energy that will have been put into the vehicle overnight will have been very cheap because at night, electricity use is a lot lower. And so the energy is a lot cheaper. And then in the morning at six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, when everybody's boiling their kettles and national grids see a massive spike in energy demand, energy becomes more expensive. And your listeners will in the future be able to essentially become an electricity trader. Is this using the kinetic energy that's been created in no, the no, vehicle? This is or how the battery how is energy. This? It's the battery energy, the right? Battery so energy. it's like we're strapping massive amounts of battery yeah. to the national grid and giving capacity to yeah, store electricity. Yes. Yes. Oh. So imagine the average demand that the UK has, and the numbers are different, but it's essentially the same concept. We see peaks and troughs in electricity demand throughout the day. And it's usually morning and evening. Business obviously uses a lot of energy during the day, but that still doesn't hit the peak that we get in the evenings when people are at home putting the heating on, cooking the tea, putting the oven on, boiling the kettle or in the morning when they're all getting up. Those are the big spikes that we see. So the first question that a lot of people ask around electrification of transport is where's the energy going to come from? And I always say you're asking the wrong question. The question is actually when is the energy going to come from? Because if everybody puts their vehicles on charge in the morning at breakfast time and in the evening when they're cooking the evening meal, then that's going to cause really big problems because we need to double the capacity Mm. on the grid. All we need to do is charge the vehicles when electricity isn't being used for peak demand. And then this peak and trough that we see throughout the day becomes a flat line. We fill the electric vehicles in where the dips in demand are. The potential of vehicle-to-grid technology beyond that is to exactly, as you were saying, Jonathan, to charge vehicles up when electricity is cheap or not a lot is being used and actually then take it away when electricity is in high demand. And if we imagine the UK, for example, by the time we're in the next decade, we'll probably see 
see a million and eventually 10 million electric vehicles on the road. Each one of those can export about seven kilowatts. If you have got all of those vehicles just exporting a 10, 20% of the capacity mm -hmm. to export back onto the grid, you could power the whole of the United Kingdom wow. for a short period of time. Wow. You don't need that, any other power. That is we a could big power battery. the nation. Yeah. Yeah. It is a big battery made up of millions and millions of small cells. That is an incredible thing. That's what the future could look like. And yeah. that will be the future of fleet ownership, not right. just cheaper cost of ownership, yeah. cheaper running cost, but potential additional benefits right. so in this balancing out grids. Really important for procurement people because this is about factoring in the future potential, not there yet, future yes. potential in terms of owning a fleet of 50, 100 vehicles yeah. and being able to use that capacity, use that charge to support infrastructure. And these are conversations that we need to be having now yes. in order to start planning yep. and at yep. least getting our head around it. Yep. People are already looking at this. For example, I've mentioned airports already. Mm -hmm. right? Imagine you're an airport. For electric vehicle car drivers, free parking for two weeks while you're on holiday on the understanding that while you're on holiday, we will use your car and everybody else's car that's parked in our car park as a massive grid level battery. Wow. And we will charge electricity up into those cars from our solar panels or when electricity is cheap and we will sell it from those car batteries when electricity is expensive. We will make a fortune and we will make sure that when you return from holiday, Jonathan, your car's charged to the point that you need to get home. And we're going to charge massive you a lot of potential. money for the privilege of helping out. Yeah. So I want to go back to carbon again because we talked about that earlier on and it's clear that we need to be reducing carbon but it's also clear that to do this the whole world has got to do this together you know there's so much we can do but we know that china is the biggest emitter interestingly china is the biggest user and producer of renewable energy as well but it's still the biggest producer of carbon along with india russia and even germany still continues to produce high emissions as well do we really stand a chance of reducing carbon and halting that increase to 1.5 degrees or should we all be worried? Oh, well, that's a good question. And the answer, Jonathan, depends on which day you ask me and the mood I got up in in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Can we afford not to? Mm -hmm. In the UK recently, we just had a heat wave where every single record of temperature was utterly smashed and not just broken. Yeah. We saw the countryside around London literally burning. And the science tells us that that is just a small taste of what is already locked in to come. You know, you watch, and I think every nation listening to this podcast has got a different version, but in the UK, we've got that show, Who Do You Think You Are?, which mm -hmm. is a genealogy show where somebody yeah. famous will look back on what their ancestors did. And you know that sense of pride that people have when some ancestor they never even knew existed until 10 minutes ago did something wonderful. And you know that sense of shame that people have when some ancestor did something awful like being involved in the slave trade. Ask yourself what our ancestors are going to look back hmm. on us like if we, right now in the next decade, couldn't be bothered to save essentially the future of yeah. humanity. Yeah. And that's my sanity check. And if you say to me, yeah, but it doesn't matter because China are doing this or China are doing that. I know you make a really good point, Jonathan. China are still using fossil fuels, yeah. but they are installing renewable energy a larger scale than anybody else. And they're driving a lot of innovation in that space. If you ask me, should we be bothered if China or India or anybody else are doing it? I say, especially speaking from the UK, you know, on this little island, the Industrial Revolution started. Mm -hmm. And if somebody had said to James, what, wow, you know, 
horses are pretty good, aren't they? Should you be bothering with that steam machine of yours? <laughs> he wouldn't have known what was going to come of it. So mm. I say, mm. let's grab the nettle on this and be the pioneers and the innovators because the people that drive this transition, that are the pioneers and the real leaders on this, they've got a very, very strong future. And so I think in the way that we led the industrial revolution, we should lead the green revolution and be proud to do so. Good advice. Pioneering innovating, looking at the future. Mm. Obviously, one of the ways of fixing this issue is to find greener ways of generating energy. Asking you to maybe even look into your crystal ball of power. Is there a new technology, right, around the corner that we don't know about that will help to save the planet? I'm sure there is. I think the biggest thing that I think we'll see in the future that we'll look back on and go, wow, weren't we in the early stages then is battery technology. I think batteries will have a new battery technology. So there are a few real kind of magic bullets in battery technology that Mm. will change things. When you say batteries, I always think batteries are bad because I'm always thinking about what's in them, not what they can do. But batteries have a massive amount of longevity and potential. And it's a really good point, actually. So if you don't mind, we'll unpack that for a sec. So firstly, going back to electric vehicles, but it doesn't matter if it's electric vehicles, grid level storage, vans, especially lithium ion batteries, which are the primary type of battery that are used, especially in transport. Mm -hmm. Everybody rightly points out that the carbon required to make those batteries and put them in a vehicle is significant and much higher than the carbon required to make an internal combustion engine Mm -hmm. vehicle, for example. Mm But the point that people forget to consider is that it will be possible when electricity and energy is clean to decouple the carbon from the energy. So when people talk about electric vehicles, for example, and criticize them understandably for being more carbon intensive and requiring more energy, what they're actually saying is exactly that. They're more energy intensive. If we clean up energy, it will be completely possible to decouple the carbon from the energy. It's time to Ask Jonathan. And today's Ask Jonathan comes from Dominic Redman, who asks, I work in the retail buying sector, and it's true to say the last 12 months have been very difficult. But are markets changing and is the balance of power that swung towards the supplier starting to swing back? The behaviour of my suppliers seems to have softened and they are not quite so brash about their position, but rather seem to be chasing orders again. What do you think, Jonathan? Yeah, this is a good, timely question. So six months ago in your sector, in the retail sector, what had seemed to have happened was that buyers were having their moment, that uh, all of a sudden they had the power, there was a lack of capacity in various marketplaces, so they were able to not only drive price increases quite successfully, but also, do you want it or not? Do you want that capacity or not? And actually, you know, I've heard many stories of suppliers getting really quite brash, quite, you know, aggressive and assertive about their position. And I think that has changed. I think what has happened now As things are slowing down, consumers are stopping buying some of the nice things, so those aisles in the supermarket where there's that thing that you never thought you needed, but I'm going to buy it anyway. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff stopped. So people have come back on that stuff. People are starting to realize that the cost increases and cost of living, that is affecting them. So stuff is slowing up. 
And I think suppliers, so they've had those cost increases because we had no choice in procurement. Also, people have secured capacity and forward bought and they've hedged and stuff like that. And now suddenly demand is eased off. There's stuff in big storerooms where people have forward bought. People are using that up. And suddenly demand has dropped. So people have got capacity back at the factories again. Not in every sector. And I think all of a sudden we're seeing markets switching back. Now, that doesn't mean that suppliers are going to rush to give us cost reductions or give us back all of the price increase we've demanded. But it does mean that we stand a better chance of being able to drive costs down again, whereas in previous months we haven't been able to do that. So, yes, I think the markets are changing. It's a subtle shift, but it's about testing those and looking to see, actually, have we regained some of the power? Can we begin to perhaps drive some of the prices back down again using the traditional approaches that we've been using? Excellent. Don't forget, if you've got a question to ask Jonathan, here is how Juan gets in touch. Ask Jonathan. Email your question to jonathan at theprocurementshow.com. You might be part of the next show. The Procurement Show. The latest thinking, the greatest insights. Let me check I understand that. So today we assume the energy is created with fossil fuels and we're polluting the atmosphere. If the energy is completely created with renewables, then it doesn't matter. Is that right? Exactly. I wouldn't say doesn't matter because we will always need to be energy efficient, but there will be no emissions and climate change associated with it. And you will never be able to say that for a diesel or petrol car. You will never be able to decouple the carbon from burning diesel or petrol or oil. They will always be carbon intensive and electric vehicles have to progress. So we will look back at electric vehicles from the future when their batteries are made cleanly, when there are no emissions associated associated with them. And the transition in battery technology will mean that they are much, much more energy dense. So in the same way that the computers and the technology that we use now is so much more quicker than the computers that, I mean, we're all gentlemen of a certain age, right? We can remember the kind of computers that we had when we first used them. And now the phone in our pocket is quicker and smarter than those computers ever were. The same will be true of battery technology, but it won't necessarily, I don't think, be range because, to be honest, once you get to 300 miles range in an EV, you're fine. I think actually what will happen is the batteries will come smaller, lighter, more efficient and more energy dense. And just quickly to pick up that point from earlier, if I can, about range anxiety. Range anxiety, by the way, is not a thing. Charger anxiety is a thing. Right. Once you get to the point where you've driven for about two hours, and again, you know, we're gentlemen of a certain age. It's bladder anxiety, right, gents? <laughs> I get that. Yeah, true, I get yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've driven for two hours, a coffee, nip to the toilet, stick about 60% of your energy in your battery in your car and drive for another two hours. Yeah. Range is not the problem. You need to know there's a charger available when you need it. And so it's infrastructure anxiety that exists, not range anxiety. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how the energy gets to us because we talked about energy and we've talked about, it was really interesting listening to the idea that EVs could become a sort of giant battery because it's hard to store energy in any quantity. We know that. So that's a bit of a game changer then. But we're going to need more energy, much, much more energy. And that's going to be a bit of a game changer. And I'm just wondering if we've got the infrastructure. Now, the cable that comes into my house... Mm is the area of that cable is actually quite small. So I'm an electronics engineer, and I know that that cable was probably put in, I don't know, 40 years Mm. ago, and there is no way that that has the capacity to suddenly double the Mm. amount of electricity. You're already probably pushing, actually, the amount of tech you have in your house. That's true. 
so I've got an issue with the cable coming into my house, yeah. and that's pretty standard, which means the cable coming up the road probably isn't good enough. Is our infrastructure ready mm. for this? Funnily enough, Jonathan, the answer to this question is the same as the answer that we already discussed. And in microcosm, the cable supply in your house is exactly the same as grid and the distribution network in any developed country, essentially. Mm. That cable coming into your house will experience peaks and troughs. Mm -hmm. And so you will, in the evening, stick the kettle on, stick the oven on, maybe put an electric heater on if your heating's electric, and Mm. there will be a massive spike. And your cable at the moment will be able to deal with that if you then get an electric car there's going to be problems if you want to charge your car and put the oven on and turn the shower on and turn the heating on what you're going to need to do is either consider how you balance those things out or have tech in your house that will balance that out for you and will automatically take your car off charge while the kettle's boiling. So in exactly the same way that we need to balance demand and balance load on the national networks and grids, we need to do the same in our homes as well. It's called demand-side response. It's called Mm -hmm. flexibility. And that's what we need. And that's the buzzword in the industry at the moment is flexibility and demand-side response and how we engage with customers or provide the technology for customers to be more flexible in their energy use. Because the entire energy distribution and transmission network in just about any country that I have any knowledge of was built on the principle of maximum demand and maximum capacity. Mm -hmm. So we know what the max is. But most of the time, we don't drive those systems to the maximum. We drive them somewhere underneath, and occasionally they reach the maximum. So we just need to make sure that if we start to get up to that maximum capacity, we have the flexibility and the ability on demand-side response to turn a few things off. And that might be that your car charger, Jonathan, is you've said to your smart car charger, I don't care when my car charges. I just need it to be 80, 90% tomorrow morning when I get up and go to work. And Paul, you may have said, actually, I've stuck my car on super fast charge right now because I've got to go. Emergency, families had an accident. I'm shooting off to see them and I need it right now. Mm -hmm. And your car will be prioritized on the local grid. And if John lives and lives next door, his will turn off for a bit to allow yours to charge. And that's demand side response. That's flexibility. You're just touching out a lot of things that need to happen behind the scenes for all this, though, aren't you? Some kind of telemetry, some kind of intelligence um, intelligence and network between devices. Yeah, And we'd have to live next door to each other as well which I'm not sure oh, about, no, to be honest with you. With that. that did occur to me, actually. Yeah, and yeah. in the same way as my man wearing grass in a cave analogy painted a picture in your mind, you two guys living next to each other painted a picture in mine. I think you'd be fantastic neighbours. Moving on. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I want to actually touch on something called, this is a theme that we keep on going back to, the circular yeah. economy. Yes. Which is the idea in circularity in terms of the resources we use, seeing a product or whatever it is, all the way through to the point at which it's disposed of, the circular economy. As procurement professionals, mm-hmm. that's a theme that comes up in conversation theme, quite yes. a lot. How does energy fit into the circular economy? Can you reuse energy? We're almost getting philosophical because, you know, energy is only transferred. It is never destroyed. So oh, that's true. One mm-hmm. that's true. We are all stardust, right? Every mineral was made in the heart of an exploding star. So it's never really destroyed. But of course, the infrastructure, the networks, the grids that we have require equipment that is procured. 
and needs to be manufactured and that is involved in a supply chain. So we are dealing with those circularity issues in our industry in exactly the same way other people are. And actually, I spend a lot of my time engaging with our purchasing and procurement teams to ask them to consider and to weight circularity and carbon much higher. I would love our business to have, and I think one day we will, I may not be in the industry to see it, but I think essentially what we will end up with in most businesses ultimately is a carbon price. Mm. So as when we consider the bottom line costs of different options in the supply chain, carbon is part of that consideration. And we make a judgment based on cost and carbon and circularity and environmental impact are associated with them. I don't think we're there yet, but we need to start weighting circularity more. So as the product that comes from Brazil, but might be a little bit cheaper, is actually not preferred over the one that was made just down the road, but costs a little bit more. So what would you say to the head of procurement that works for an organization? They use a lot of energy, they move a lot of stuff around, so they've got a big fleet, and its mission today wants to cut its scope two, scope three emissions. So all the emissions in the supply chain, all the energy it uses, it just that's what it's got to do. And we've talked about a lot of the things so far, but if somebody said, so what should I do? What's the number one, number two, number three thing? What should that individual be thinking about? Let's make sure you've got accurate understanding of the measurement of your emissions. Make mm-hmm. sure that you are engaging with, you know, your listeners obviously understand the concept scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions, essentially direct, indirect, and supply chain emissions in carbon. And a lot of people don't even measure their scope three or don't even ask for those measurements. And by asking for them, we drive that improvement. The suppliers and the contractors that didn't use to bother their scope one and scope two suddenly have to because their customers are asking for scope three. And so measure you can't improve what you don't measure and so measure your emissions understand where they come from and pick the low-hanging fruit i think that perspective manager that you just spoke about is sitting there wanting to save costs and actually i would bet that the low-hanging fruit as far as emissions go are probably going to be cost savings as well and efficiency savings so target those and then plan in the short medium and long term pick the low-hanging fruit as quickly as you can but plan for the future so as if you do have to make larger investment you're making investment that's fit for the future brilliant and from where you sit what does the future of energy supply and distribution look like if anybody sits where i sit jonathan and Mm. tells you that they know absolutely what the future of energy supply and distribution looks like they're lying Mm -hmm. because there is so much that is unknown i talked about vehicle to grid technology i don't know whether in the future your car will be powering back onto the grid or whether actually it's simpler and easier and cheaper just for you to power your own home and take your home off the grid Mm. one will be simpler and cheaper and not that much less beneficial to the grid people often talk about hydrogen at the moment hydrogen is really not an option because it's so energy intensive and wasteful as far as a storage medium compared to batteries for example but in the future if we can get so much renewable energy on the network on the grid across the nation if we can really truly make our energy renewable hydrogen is going to be invaluable at storing energy when we've got too much Mm. because if you're going to waste it anyway inefficient storage is better than no storage at all but when that will happen how it will happen we don't know the thing i would say is people might be listening to this thinking well you know we don't know what's going on i'd rather just do nothing and wait to see what happens 
my response to that is that the status quo is not going to be the status quo for long. Mm. And the businesses that will thrive in the future are going to be the most innovative. They are going to be the most agile and they are going to be the most regenerative. And so getting excited about this future where so much is unknown is already a business advantage, I would say, because wow. it's, if it's nothing else, it's going to be interesting. And this procurement's is... got a key role mm. to play in that, I think. You yeah. Know, so I love, you know, you paint a picture of the future home and how it will be powered and how we'll have electricity. Of course, the other thing I could do, I could just run a cable over the fence into Paul's house, plug it into that. <laughs> ah, that's illegal. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'd hate to be in your job trying to plan for a future yeah. that you really seriously don't yet know, especially when you've got things like, what's it, Moore's Law that says technology yeah doubles every yeah you have to literally have that crystal ball that we were talking about earlier what would be your three key takeaways from this discussion i spend a lot of time engaging in our industry and within our business with procurement to try and encourage them to see what i see my main takeaway from this is that the fact that you've been kind enough to ask me to join you is that you are starting to see that as well and your listeners are starting to see that as well. And the other takeaway is that, as I've already said, there are going to be really interesting times ahead. I think my main takeaway is we don't fully know what the future looks like, but we know it has to be different. I talked about that consideration of how our ancestors might look back and look at us. We've got two options, as I see it. We stick our head in the sand, think we can't do anything, stick with the status quo and do nothing. Or we grasp this massive opportunity, be part of the change that we want to see in the world and get excited about it. I always wish I was 20 again, you know, but I wish I was at the beginning of a career in my industry or in procurement. If you're early on in your career in procurement now, you are going to see such an amazing amount of change in the way everything is done that you will have had by the end of your career, if nothing else, a really interesting time. So I think that's a heartening thing to consider. And I think we're all out there to fight the good fight, right? Brilliant. Andy Marto Ike, thank you so much for joining us. I've learned so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Pleasure was mine. You've been listening to The Procurement Show. Contact us by email, hello at theprocurementshow.com. Connect with us on LinkedIn, search for The Procurement Show, and on Twitter at Procurement Show. Visit us at theprocurementshow.com. The Procurement Show is brought to you by Positive Purchasing, enabling the future of procurement in organizations around the globe. Copyright Positive Purchasing. All rights reserved. Produced by Fresh Air Studios.